Good to see you again today. And uh, my name again is Josh. If you don't know me, one of the pastors here. Glad for those of you who are here with us, as well as those of you who are joining us online. Glad you can be with us. You know, I, uh, Pastor Dave's talking about man camp, and I hear uh, shooting, throwing axes, Pastor Josh on the high ropes. I hope I'm not the target. That's all I could think of. Well, hey, uh, you know, my voice is still struggling a little bit this morning, so forgive me. Uh, packing something in my, in my cheek here like a squirrel, just so I don't start hacking on you. I'm feeling good. Just got a little cough, and my voice is just not coming back. So uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be in First uh, Peter chapter 2. And uh, in First Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11, and you know, this morning, I don't have... Uh, clever intro or some kind of thing to hook and get your attention. So we're just going to dive right in. Is that okay? And in fact, maybe that will be the thing then for you. You'll just remember, oh yeah, that was that day he was, didn't have anything. We just got right at it. So let's do that today. Uh, if you got your Bible, open up with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And uh, we're going to start in uh, verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Just two verses this morning, so let's, let's read these together. Beloved Peter writes, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let me pray, and then we're going to unpack these two verses together. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thank you for Jesus and your grace to us through him. And um, Lord, I, I do pray this morning that even as we've sang, you've, uh, you'd remind us again of your love and your care for us and your kindness toward us and who we are in you. I pray, too, that uh, you would uh, give in us a desire uh, to, to pursue you like we sang this morning, Jesus. There's, there's nothing greater than you. And as we, we see that and understand that, I pray that for myself, for our whole church, uh, Jesus, that, that you would use that then to, to help us put away our sin and to put on good conduct and good deeds and things that are honoring to you and good for others. Jesus, we'd fight those things with, with our love for you. Um, speak through me, even as I uh, teach and preach your word, and my, my words be your own. Uh, Lord, change us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, uh, who you are affects what you do. Do you know that? And maybe, maybe better said, who you think you are. Uh, radically affects the way that you live your life. Because you tend to live out that identity. You, you tend to live out uh, your, your thoughts and what you believe to be true about yourself. Your actions follow your identity. And uh, this morning, I just want you to consider for a moment who you are. Because it's because of who you are that, that Peter really gives this command to us this morning. It's because of who you are of who you are. As we start this morning, it's good to note even how Peter addresses those that he's writing to, which would be in uh, churches in what is today modern-day Turkey, kind of northern Asia Minor. 
And he writes to them with, with one word, he reminds them of their identity. Now, if you were here last Sunday and uh, unpacking uh, verses four through 10 of chapter two, we saw over and over Peter mentioned who we are in Christ, right? Like we've been chosen, we've been picked, we've been uh, made into a holy people and a holy nation. We belong to him as his own people and his possession. But, but he kind of sums all of that up with one word this morning. Look at how he starts this passage today. Beloved. Beloved. You know, that's not a term we use much anymore, is it? I mean, how many of you, you walked around, hello, beloved. You know, like, Bart, you probably dress your wife like that all the time. Good morning, beloved. Dearly beloved, don't you? Does he stuff? No? Okay, well, you should. It's kind of an archaic term. Like, we don't, we don't think of, of it as much anymore, and it's just not used in common language much anymore. And so some translations, actually, in order to um, help us uh, adapt the, the text into just modern contemporary language, will say, your translation might even say, dear friends, I urge you, right here, right? But I think beloved is, is a good choice, even though it's a word that we don't often use, because it causes us to think about it. And there's some depth there to it. What Peter's basically saying here is loved ones, you're loved. You hear that ever? You're loved. That's what he's saying. He said loved ones, and then he, he reminds them that they're loved by Jesus and they're loved by him. You know, this is how, if you're new to our church or you've been here for any length of time, this is really kind of how we understand God's kingdom, that we're loved by Jesus and uh, we get to enjoy that and experience that. And through his love, he changes us. And then as ambassadors of his kingdom, we're sent to love others. So that anybody who comes in the door would, would know they're loved by Jesus and they're loved by us. You know, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a giant sign on the building when you walk in. You ever seen that? It's just huge. Why is that there? It's to remind you of your identity. It's to remind you if you've trusted Jesus that you know who you are? You're beloved, you're a loved one. He loves you more than you ever dreamt that he might love you. You're more precious and valuable to him than you ever hoped to be to anyone in the world. Think about this, you're loved by Jesus, the, the creator and sustainer of the universe loves you. In fact, he, he put on flesh uh, eternal God put on flesh, became human, lived a perfect life in my place, in your place. And then uh, even though he never earned the penalty for sin, he paid the penalty for sin and suffered God's wrath for my sin and for your sin on the cross. Why did he do that? Because he loves you. We read it this morning, right away when we started the service, right? From, from Ephesians chapter two, verses four through six. I, th I think it might be good for us just to revisit that again, but let's read them out of order. Let's start with verse five and look at what his love does. Paul says, even when we were dead, when we were dead in our sin, we weren't alive. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he, he made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. In other words, it has nothing to do with you or your goodness. It has everything to do with Jesus' goodness. It's by grace that you've been saved through the work of Christ. And he, he, not only that, he raised us up. We were dead, but he raised us up and gave us life with him, seated us with him. He honored us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, why again, why did he do this? Well, look back at verse four. 
because of the great love with which he loved you. That's why. You are loved. Do you get it? You're loved by Jesus, by the creator of the universe. Paul tells us in Romans 5, 8, God proves his love for us that while we were still his enemies, still sinners, Christ died for us on the cross. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16, may may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and has given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace. He, He loves us. We go on and on with passages of scripture that speak of God's love for you. And not only that, but we talk about our our concept of God's kingdom being loved. It's also the truth that uh, our our heart is that not only you know that you're loved by Jesus, but you're loved by us. Now, granted, we don't do this nearly as well as Jesus does, right? Jesus' love never fails. It never ends. It's inexhaustible. It's perfect. But the way we love, if Jesus' love is about here, our love is somewhere down by the carpet. But our desire is to love you the way Jesus loves, so that you would understand that he loves you. And it's because he first loved us. I mean, th- this has become the mission of our church, right? Have you memorized this yet, those of you who call Wawasee home? I want you to say it with me, it's gonna be on the screen. We are sent to love people and invite them to follow Jesus with us. But I think in remembering who we are, that we're loved ones, maybe we ought to just add a little reminder on the front of that before we say it. Because we're loved, we're sent to love people. It's because he first loved us that now we're sent to love others. That's the kingdom. You're loved by Jesus, you're loved by his people, and. Uh, you know, Peter is reminding his readers here, his readers, by the way, they were living lives in exile. He calls them exiles a couple times already in this book. And again, this morning, calls them sojourners, foreigners, living in a place that's not home, basically, passing through. And they faced a, a culture that was pretty hostile to Christianity. More and more so even in the decades after Peter wrote this letter. And so my guess is that their life felt maybe a little bit estranged. They felt a little bit outcast, a little on the outside looking in. Uh, Some were persecuted because of their faith. And so what a great reminder to them of who they are in Christ that we saw last Sunday and now that they're loved in the middle of all that. You know, it's a good reminder for us too that I, I don't know what your week's been like. I don't know what your life has been like this last year, this month, what's coming. But in the midst of maybe you too, you felt estranged, you felt lonely, you felt discouraged, you've uh, faced opposition because of your faith. You're loved. You're loved. And that love, as Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, right, it gives us great encouragement and hope and his grace. So we just kind of pause here this morning before we get going into the text to just remind you that you're loved. And listen, No matter who you are, no matter the color of your skin, no matter where you're from, uh, no matter your age, no matter your gender, you are loved. No matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, you're loved. You're loved by Jesus, you're loved by us. 
And, and hear me, if you've never responded to his love for you, let me just tell you, it is life-changing. It, literally, life-changing. You receive new life when you respond in repentance to his love. If you, if you never respond to his love, that's okay. We still love you. We still care about you. Still want you to hang around with us. But know that you're loved. And if you would respond to his love in faith, be the greatest decision of your life with eternal implications. So with that established, let's look again at our passage today. Let's just read the whole thing again. We only got two verses. We might as well, right? Uh, Beloved, Peter writes, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What Peter does here in these two verses, he kind of gives a negative command. Don't do this. Put this away. Abstain from those desires and passions of the flesh. And then he gives a positive command. Don't do this. Do do this. You see that? Verse 11 is kind of the the don't do. Verse 12 is the same thing, but the do do. (laughs) But it's really good, actually. And he tells us what we ought to do. You know, it reminds me of of a song we used to sing when I was a youth pastor, and even when I was in high school, um, based on a verse in scripture of Romans 16, 19. And Romans 16, 19, the, the song would say, be excellent at what is good, be innocent of evil. And you get into the next verse in Romans and it talks about the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Like there's hope coming, but in the meantime, be excellent at what's good, be innocent of evil. And and that verse, uh, this is the Christian standard Bible. He says, therefore I rejoice over you, Paul writes, but I want you to be wise about what's good, to know it, yet be innocent about what's evil, not to practice it. So uh, because of who you are, I'm gonna kind of take that, the lyric from the song based on that verse and do it in reverse order. Because of who you are, uh, be innocent of evil. That's the first thing Peter tells us, right? Here in verse 11. Be innocent of evil. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. I urge you. He's like, loved ones, you're loved. I urge you. You, you, you got to do this. I, I, I just, I want you so much to, to, to abstain from those things that wage war against your soul, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, to turn from those things. Why? Because you're loved. Because you're loved. I, I, I urge you, be innocent of evil. Live out who you are, Peter's saying. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. That, that word abstain, um, The tense of it really means just this continual action, like hold yourself constantly back from those passions because they are tempting, right? Uh, The writer of Hebrews says that the the pleasure of sin is fleeting. We wouldn't sin if there wasn't pleasure in it, right? But it's momentary and it flees. So Peter knows it's tempting. He knows, he's like, listen, abstain from that. Keep abstaining from it. Keep pushing it back. Keep holding back. Don't give in to it. Be innocent of evil. Be who you truly are in Jesus Christ. You know, it's not a one and done thing. But here's the thing. Over time, as you resist 
sin and you resist the enemy and you resist temptation in your life by the power of the Spirit and the Word of God, it becomes easier. It's like exercising a muscle, right? And over time, it becomes more and more natural for you. But you have to keep working. That's why Paul wrote uh, in 1 Corinthians, he said, I discipline my body to keep it under control. And he says he does this to, to live a holy life. You know, uh, Hannah and I, I, I live with a five-year-old boy. Do you know that? And a uh, little five-year-old boy, I love him to death. Um, and so because we love him, you know, every now and then we correct him on things. Well, really, every now and then, every five minutes. Because he's five. He's got a lot of energy. But one of the things that, that he often, we hear, maybe you've heard this in your house. Uh, Charlie, you, gotta, you can't do that. You've got to stop that. But I can't. It's too hard. I can't do it. And I, it's, I can't, Dad. No, I, just, I can't help it. <laughs> you ever hear that in your house? Or have you ever heard that? I wonder, though, how many times do we say that to God? He says, abstain from that. Turn from that. I can't. I can't do it. It's too hard. I just, I can't help it. That's just what I do. I can't help it. You know, the very fact that Peter includes this command here to abstain from the passions of the flesh tells me that there's a sense in which we, we can do it. Now, you can't do it on your own, but you can in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Why? Because that's who you are now. You're loved. You're new. You've responded to his love. And so you've been made new and the Holy Spirit is in you and you can Abstain from that. Not to say that you're going to get it perfect and right all the time. One day you will when Jesus returns and sermons like these will be over. But, but until then, we need to be reminded, like Peter reminds them, abstain from that. Put it away. That's not who you are. You're loved. And, and we are. You know, think about that. We live in a culture where it's just assumed that our passions and what we desire and what we want is just uncontrollable. Just do whatever is right for you. Do whatever you think, whatever brings you happiness in the moment. Do that. But God's design seems to be, no, that it might bring you happiness for a fleeting moment. But you need to abstain from those things. That's not who you are. And you need, you need real joy. That's what you're going for when you, when you venture down those roads. You're trying to self-medicate something that's deeper than that thing is going to fulfill well, when Peter tells us to abstain from the passions of the flesh, by the way, he mentioned some of those earlier in the text already, you know, to put away anger and malice and deceit and slander. But, but he, he tells us why, just right before that, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles. Um, notice the reasoning he gives. It's because of who they are. That's why you need to put it away. Because that's not you. Don't, don't live like this world. This, this isn't home. You're just, you're passing through. That term was used in the Old Testament of Abraham when he was passing through Egypt in Genesis chapter 23, 24, somewhere in there. And he's sojourning, and he's in exile. He's, sojourning just means I'm passing through. Exile means this isn't ultimately home. It's home for now. It's not home forever, right? And because of that, abstain then from the things of this world. It, Last week we saw in verse nine, you're a chosen race. This is who you are, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. 
so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who did what? Who called you out of darkness and where? Into his marvelous light. You've been called out of that. Put it away. Put it away. It's not who you are. Well, why? Why should I? Just because Peter tells us it, those things wage war against your soul. There's a battle going on for your soul. And those passions, that sin, it wages war within you. You might think, you know, for a moment, um, that's kind of harsh, isn't it, Josh? I mean, like, you know, it just that's not hurting anybody that I indulge in that or that I do that or that I feel that or that I think that. or It's not really hurting anybody. Why is it such a big deal? I'll tell you why. Because left unchecked long enough, it's, it's waging war against your soul, against my soul. It's killing you. Put it aside. Paul writes in Romans 7, I see in my members, any of you who've been following Jesus really for any length of time, you, you resonate with this. I see within me another law waging war against the law of my mind. In other words, what I want to do, what I know who I am, I feel this within me, my sin within me, wait, it's a war going on. Like I know this is who I am, but within me, I, I still have those passions and those desires. Peter's saying abstain from that. Making me captive, Paul writes, to the law of sin that dwells within me. James writes, what causes, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Isn't not this, he says, that your passions are at war within you? And sometimes you give in to those things, and I do as well. 2 Corinthians 10, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare, Paul writes, are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So we take all things captive, every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus. It's a war. It's a war for your soul. You know, maybe to help illustrate this, I thought, let's look at a couple dead guys today. One named John Owen. John Owen was a Puritan, and uh, he wrote uh, um, uh, he wrote a ton. But one of his more famous things is called uh, "Of the Mortification of Sin in Believers: The Necessity, Nature, and Means of It." That's only, by the way, half the title. I won't give you the rest of it. But one of the things that he says lines right up here with First Peter chapter two, verse eleven. He says this, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. When I start to read that, I get the orange part that's highlighted, right? But what about that first line? Like, do you mortify? Huh? What does that mean? I don't use, use that word. I mean, when I think of being mortified, I think of just being embarrassed. Like, oh, I can't believe that happened. I'm, I'm mortified of it. But, but mortified, you know, in its original sense, not, not being embarrassed, it's, it's to kill something. Literally, it comes from a couple Latin words that means uh, to put to death, death to do, to put something 
to death. That's what mortification is. So when uh, Owen is, talks about mortifying sin and asking, do you mortify? He's saying, are you putting sin to death in your life? Because if you're not killing it, it's killing you. And that's exactly what Peter said. If you're not killing it, it's killing you. But to mortify, have you ever, you ever butchered a pig? You've mortified it. Ever step on a spider? You've mortified it. Now you need to do that as a follower of Jesus because of who you are, you need to do that to your sin. To put it to death. To be done with it. To turn from it. To abstain from those things because it's a war for your soul and if you're not killing it, it's killing you. You know, um, all the lusts of the flesh we need to kill that rage against who we are as followers of Jesus, who he's made us to be. A couple scriptures come to mind. Romans chapter eight, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. That's not who we're in debt to. It says, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Uh, any of you who grew up maybe in a, a more traditional church or with the King James version of the Bible, you know that this passage actually says, uh, but if by the spirit you mortify the deeds of the body in the old King James, you kill it. How do you do it? By the spirit, not in your own strength. If by the spirit you put it to death. See, the reality is you can't put it to death on your own. That's religion. Religion says you can do it all yourself. Just try real hard, think the right thoughts, uh, do everything right, and then all your wildest dreams will come true. It'll all come together, right? And if it's not, you're probably not doing it right yet. <laughs> no, that's religion. The gospel is you're never gonna get it right. You're never gonna get it together. But Jesus loves you so much that he died in your place on the cross to give you new life so that in that new life, by the power of the spirit, you can abstain from those things, not in your own strength, but in his. And you can put those things to death. Colossians 3 is another passage that uh, the King James says, mortify, mortify therefore, put to death therefore what's earthly in you. And, and Paul lists a handful of the things that we need to put to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, Paul says. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Again, if you're trying to put those aside on your own, you're never gonna be able to totally put them away apart from the work of Christ. But Jesus took the wrath of God for those things for you in your place so that he could give you life. See, in these two, you once walked when you were living in them. But now, but now you must put them all away. And then he lists some of the same things that Peter did early in this book. Anger and wrath and malice and slander, obscene talk from your mouth. You need to put it away. You need to kill it. You need to be done with it. Now, any of you who've, who've trusted Jesus and you follow Jesus, I don't think there'd be anybody in the room who'd be like, I don't know about this, Josh. I don't know about killing sin, putting it away, doing what's right, being holy. Nah. I don't think we need to do that. Nobody would say that. Would you say that? Nobody would. We'd all be like, yeah, that's right. I do need to kill it. I do need to put it away. I do want, and I want to be done with those things. But how? <laughs> how? How do I do it? 
That's incredibly hard. How do you do it? How do you mortify, making it your daily work, as Owen wrote, so that always while you live, you don't cease a day from that work of killing sin, lest it be killing you? Well, as we read in in Scripture, the the Holy Spirit is the means by which sin is put to death. And, And John Owen, in this long treatment on killing sin, he also says this, Um, Then uh, toward that end of the spirit doing that work, he said, a man can easier see without eyes or speak without a tongue than truly mortify one sin without the spirit. He's like, you could see better without eyes and talk better without a tongue than you could try to kill just one tiny sin in your life apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and his help. Therefore, it follows that... uh, the work of killing sin is something the Spirit does in the life of those who trust Jesus. A lot of people ask, how do I, how do, I do it? And again, we're getting there, but let's keep reading. Uh, it's not gonna be on the screen, but I'll read to you a little more uh, from what uh, Owen writes. He says, to kill a man or any other living thing is to take away the principle of its strength, its vigor and power, so that he cannot act or exert or put forth any prop actions of his own. We understand what it means to kill something or someone. It ultimately means to take away its strength and power. And we're reminded that indwelling sin is compared to a person, even a living person, the old man, the old self. When we're mortifying sin, we're aiming to kill all, uh, Owen writes, that inclines, entices, impels to evil, rebels, opposes, fights against God. In other words, when we're mortifying sin, we're going after everything that's evil, all, our des- all the evil desires in our hearts that lure us toward evil. And we go after it like uh, intolerant, unaccommodating spiritual assassins. Be killing sin or it'll be killing you. But we don't stop there, he goes on to write. He says that uh, we also have to work to cultivate a new desire to replace those fallen lusts. Any of you have a garden? Garden? Any gardeners around? If if you dig up a weed out of your garden or even in your yard, you pull some weeds. What happens if that's all you do? It grows back. In case you never had a garden, it grows back, and it grows back with more force. And unless you do something to to plant something else there in its place and to keep tilling the soil and really go after the root, because that's sometimes the hardest thing is you'll, you'll pull off a weed and you're like, yeah, it's done, it's dead, look. You didn't realize its root went down another like five feet into the ground. <laughs> and until you deal with that root, you're just kind of treating the surface, right? But then you've got to cultivate the soil. You've got to plant something else good in that spot to grow. The best way to fight weeds in your yard is to have more grass. Well, it's the same thing in the Christian life. Oh, and the way he says it is by the implanting habitual residence and cherishing of a principal grace that stands in direct opposition to it and is destructive of it. That's kind of wordy for us, isn't it? Maybe it is for you, it is for me as I read it. He's saying uh, what another dead guy said, a guy by the name of Thomas Chalmers, you need to fight pleasure with pleasure. Here's what he said in talking about the root of sin in his uh, sermon, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Chalmers writes this, "The, the root power of sin is severed 
by the power of a superior pleasure, a more compelling joy. How do you kill sin in your life? When you put it away, but the, the way you keep it away and you continue to abstain, you continue to push it away, is you replace what is pleasurable in sin with the pleasure of who Jesus is and, and knowing God and enjoying him. But when you're stuck in sin, you think, oh, that sounds boring. <laughs> I don't know if I want to do that. That doesn't sound that great, Josh. Like, what do you mean? That's it? How do I kill it? Well, Sometimes you have to take some radical action, right? Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, do what? Pluck it out. Was he saying, grab a spoon, pluck your eye out? No, but he is saying, be willing to take some radical action to deal with sin in your life and be rid of it and put it away. But also, then you need to do something in that place. You need to replace that affection with a greater affection. You need to long for Jesus, this is why we've been talking about habits so much over the last few weeks. Spiritual habits, right? If you go to, go to the website, wallacebible.com slash habits, there's a scripture you can memorize that the Holy Spirit uses in your life. It's like fuel for the Spirit to use to kill sin and to grow you over time. There's, uh, there's links to playlists of worship songs. There's, there's all kinds of stuff that you can do, and we're going to keep adding to that. As you develop those habits, develop those muscles to continually abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. When you develop those muscles, develop those habits, you begin to replace that pleasure with a greater one. That's how you kill sin. Not by trying harder, but by loving Jesus more. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so because of who you are, you're loved. Be innocent of evil and excellent at what's good. Verse 12, he goes on to the positive side. <clears throat> and Peter says this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. <clears throat> so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of, his, of visitation of Jesus' return. Now in the Bible, when it speaks of somebody glorifying God, it's always after they've trusted Christ. Like, um, you don't read about God's enemies glorifying him. You read about them bowing their knee to him, but not glorifying him, worshiping him. That's part of why they're punished for eternity is they refuse to, to turn to him in faith and respond to his love. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among un unbelievers, honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you, <coughs> excuse me, they might see your good deeds and glorify God. You know, Peter doesn't tell them in the midst of, of a world that's maybe in opposition to the truth, to just pull away and live in a bubble. He doesn't tell them, uh, pick up your sword and fight and rebel, and raise a big stink. No, he says, um, as you live in that place in exile, which is your home for now, do good. Put away sin and do good. 
Why? So that people would see your good deeds, even when they speak evil against you, and, and honor and glorify the Lord. And you know, friends, the reality is that more and more we do, and I don't say this to discourage you, but just to be honest with you, I mean, we live in a culture where, where more and more there's hostility towards being a follower of Jesus, right? And we're even accused of being evildoers when we uh, say, well, uh, God designed and created everything, and here's what he says about sexuality. Here's what he says about marriage. Here's what he says about these things. And in our culture, that's looked at, you're so intolerant. That's, you're an evildoer. You're a, you, you hate her, you. Well, the more then that you love because you're loved, hopefully by God's grace, they'll see your good deeds and they too might come to faith in Jesus Christ. The more you love him, the more you can put away your own sin and the more you can have and be empowered to, to love people in the same way that you've been loved and to have joy. You know, uh, Peter, I've mentioned uh, many times, has spent a lot of time with Jesus. He was good friends with him. He was part of kind of his inner three. And uh, what he says here in verse 12 really echoes uh, part of uh, some of Jesus' greatest teaching in Matthew chapter five, where in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, right? And then he says, you're the light of the world. And here's what he says in verse 16. In the same way then, just like people don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand so that it shines and gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? Does this sound like Peter? I bet this is where Peter heard it the first time, hanging out with Jesus. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God a day of visitation. And the way Jesus says it, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Uh, friends, as we wrap up this morning, uh, let, let me just encourage you, you, you are loved. And because of who you are, if you've responded to his love, be innocent of evil. Put those passions away. Replace those passions with a greater passion for Christ develop some of those habits, build some of that muscle, right? It will bring joy to your life over time. Is it hard work? Yeah, it's hard work. But it's good work. As you kill sin so it's not killing you. And then, not only be innocent of evil, but be excellent at what's good. Be excellent. Do good. Live out who you are. Love others. Be sent to love no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what they've said or even done to you. Love them so that one day they might even respond to the invitation to follow Jesus with you. As we close, let's just read these two verses again and then I'll pray. Beloved, Peter writes, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Those things that are waging war against your soul. It's killing you. Mortify it. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among those who don't know Jesus, honorable. Why? So that when they speak evil against you, because 
At some point they might. They will, potentially, for some of us. That they might see your good deeds. See your love for Jesus, your love for them, and one day glorify God on the day of visitation. Friends, you're loved. Let's be about killing sin and about loving Jesus with passion. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us through him, uh, the truth of your word. Holy Spirit, uh, we can't kill sin on our own. We just can't. No matter how hard we try, we might succeed at uh, doing some good things or putting aside some things for a time, but ultimately there's still a battle going on within that, Jesus, we need you and we need your spirit ultimately to conquer. Friend, if that's you, if you've never trusted Jesus, um, you've been uh, working so hard to try to put something away in your life or to change who you are or to conquer some issue, whatever that might be. You long to have some of these things be true of you. Listen, it's, it, it begins with you responding to Jesus' love for you, recognizing that he does love you, turning to him in faith and just saying, Jesus, I surrender. I give myself to you. I believe. Change me. And he promises to do that as you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that he's Lord. And then he begins by the power of his spirit that comes to live in you to kill that sin, to mortify it, to help you abstain from those things that are no longer who you are. Holy Spirit, might we live out First uh, Peter chapter two and uh, Jesus' words even on the Sermon on the Mount that our light would shine, that people would see our good deeds, see in them your goodness and ultimately not praise us but glorify you. Lord, thanks for Jesus. We pray all of this through him. Amen.